Good morning again. As I said earlier, my name is uh, Brad Birkin, and I'm on staff here at Forest Grove Community Church. And one thing you need to know about me is I am a visual learner. Uh, I learn best either with word pictures, or actually I learn best, as I explained to the staff uh, a couple of weeks ago, I learn best when I am hands-on and can actually get into something. That's how I learn best. And so as a kid, I loved Mr. Dressup. Because whenever Mr. Dressup went to go tell a story, he magically went to his tickle trunk, and amazingly enough, exactly what he needed for the story was in there every time, and I never understood how that trunk could hold all that stuff. And he had just the right things to illustrate the story, and that worked for me because I needed those word pictures. So when I was asked to speak on Sunday morning, I thought I would give that a try, because chances are, if that's how I learn best, there may just be others in this room who learn well from word pictures. And as I looked at the text today, I thought, hey, Paul is actually bringing us word pictures to help us understand what he's saying. So we will get to the trunk in a little bit, but first let's open in a word of prayer. Almighty Heavenly Father, we come before you. And I thank you for the gift that the scriptures are to us. I thank you that you've given us your word. And that by studying this, we can get to know you better. And I thank you for that. I pray this morning that you would use me as an instrument. That you would uh, allow me to speak truth from your word today. And I pray as we go out that these words would impact us in the week, in the weeks, and in the months to come. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing through our series, which we've entitled Entrusted. And it's a look at First and Second Timothy and Titus. And last week, Bruce led us through the first chapter of Second Timothy. And one of the key points that came out from last week was this idea that we are to remain faithful in discipleship. And even more than that, that we are to remain faithful through the highs and the lows of discipling others. And so we looked at that in depth last week. And so this week we're continuing on with chapter 2. And we have to keep in mind that this was originally written as one letter. And didn't have these breaks that we've put in. And so this is a continuation of the letter. And in the first verse of chapter 2 we read, Timothy My dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. And as we look at this, I found, I'm reading from the New Living uh, Translation. And as I looked at other translations, there's one word that almost every other translation uses in here that the New Living leaves out. And I think it's a very important word, and I think it's a word that uh, should have been included in here. And it's the little word... Then, in most other translations, if you read through it, it will say something along the lines of, you then, my dear son. And the reason I think the word then is a very important word in this opening verse is the word then refers us back to the first chapter. It's a way of Paul saying, in light of what I have just told you, be strong. And so that gives us a context for this strength that he's speaking of. 
in what I've just told you about being faithful in the highs and lows of discipling others, you, Timothy, need to be strong. And so he's setting up that what he's speaking of in these verses to come is still on this idea of teaching others. He's still talking about that same concept. He's telling us that in order to remain faithful in discipleship, we need to be strong, and that strength doesn't come from within us. That strength comes through Christ Jesus. That's where the strength that we are going to need is going to come from. And he continues in verse 2 to say, You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. And so again, he's referring back to chapter 1. It's still on this idea of teaching others and discipling others. It's this idea of multiplication. This idea of, of spreading out the gospel. We know that this letter was written close to the end of Paul's life. He, as we've already mentioned, is in chains, in prison, awaiting his execution. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, The time of my death is near. And so I can imagine him there in prison, chained up, thinking, you know what, Timothy, I've told you some things, but my time on earth is almost done. And we don't know how long your time on earth is going to be, so it's important that we continue to entrust others. In fact, in the New International Version, they they use that word entrust. You need to entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach to others. He's saying, we can't just keep this to ourselves. He said, I've taught you, you need to teach others, and you need to choose people who will also be able to teach others. Because we need to get this gospel message spread around the world. And it's not going to happen if it's one of us doing that. And he even mentions that you should be teaching this to reliable people who have those gifts that they need in order to teach it to others. It's very important to Paul that we continue to, to, uh, to propagate the gospel, to continue to spread the gospel. And that's one of the, the, the philosophies we have at Forest Grove Community Church. If you speak to the staff and ask them about how we do ministry, our goal is not for us to do. Our goal as staff is not to be doers. Our goal as staff is to be raising up and empowering others. And there's times that that involves us doing But a big part of what our job is, is to try to raise up and empower other people. So they can go and raise up and empower other people. And so that we can continue to multiply. And so he's encouraging, in this case, Timothy. And as we read it, he's encouraging us to be building into other people. To be building up other people. A word we often use today is to be mentoring other people. Or discipling other people. And this is more than just teaching, although teaching is a big part of it. But it requires spending time together. It requires getting to know somebody. It requires helping them discover what the gifts and special abilities that Christ has given them, that they've received through the Spirit, and empowering them to use those for the body of Christ. And so in light of that, Paul says, Endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And when I first read over that, I have to admit I kind of read over that fairly quickly. Endure suffering along with me. 
And then I stopped for a moment and tried to think, what would this have meant to Timothy? When Timothy was reading through this, what would he have thought when Paul says, endure with me? I want to jump to 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 24, where Paul is speaking and explains five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then Paul says to Timothy, endure along with me. And we suddenly realize that this is not a simple call. This is not an easy call to endure along with him. And as I thought through it, I thought, do we in North America in the 21st century really understand what it means to endure for the sake of the cross? It is estimated today that between 50 and 70,000 Christians in North Korea are in concentration camps because of their faith. Today, there are 50 to 70,000 people who are being starved, tortured, and ultimately dying because of their faith. In fact, right now, Christians are being urged to pray for 33 North Korean Christians who are waiting their imminent execution and will be executed at any point. And the president of Open Doors Uh, who watches persecution of Christians in various countries, says, we need to bathe the country of North Korea in prayer. North Korea has been the number one persecutor of Christians on the Open Doors World Watch list for 12 years in a row, and for good reasons. And he ends his statement with this. Usually when persecution increases in a country, the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ is rapidly spreading. Usually it's in those contexts where people have to put their life on the line in order to follow Christ that the gospel is spreading the fastest. And so when I look at that, the first thought is I need to pray for the people in North Korea. In other parts of the world, we know there are many parts of the world where people are suffering for the faith. And I need to pray for them and need to pray that they stay strong because we know that it's often in those countries where the gospel is spreading the fastest. And then I need to pray for my own country and ask God why there's not more persecution here. And is that partly because there's no threat from us spreading the gospel right now? In this verse... Paul encourages us to be willing to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And as I read these stories, I realize the suffering that I have been, for whatever reason, the suffering that I've been asked to endure is far less than what many others do. 
but that's not circumstances I can change. So I simply need to endure the suffering that I do have and whatever does come my way. And I should put that in context compared to what many others are facing. But Paul is clear. He doesn't leave Timothy with this daunting task to endure and then just leave him there and say, endure with me for the sake of the gospel and then leave him there. He, be, he goes on to provide him with some tools that he can have, some insight that he can use in that task. And he moves into three word pictures, which help reveal three key strengths or three key areas of our life that we can be watching that will help us to continue on and endure in the strength of Christ. In verse 4, we see the first of these. He says, Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. So the first word picture we see is a picture of dedication. It's a picture of dedication that we find in a soldier. And so again, for somebody like me who likes visuals, I think, again, we have to look at what would have been known in the culture of their day, of how they would have read that in the culture of their day. Military images are common throughout Paul's writings. And as we read through various uh, letters that he's written, various scriptures that he's written, we see this military metaphor. But in most cases, it has to do with the idea of warfare, of the spiritual warfare and how to prepare for the spiritual warfare In this case, he's using it for a metaphor for the dedication. And precisely, it's the dedication that a soldier has for his commanding officer. The image of this single-minded purpose, this unquestioning dedication that a soldier would have had for his commanding officer. And when I did some looking into this, I read that soldiers often gave up everything when they entered the military. They often were unmarried and not allowed to marry because it was thought that that would be a weakness. It would divide their loyalties. They gave up their ties to family. They gave up all of these ties in order to follow. And they were ready at a moment's notice to do whatever their commanding officer asked them to do. They were never tied up in the affairs, as it speaks in this verse, of civilian life. Now, it didn't mean they didn't They didn't live amongst the civilians. At times they did, but they weren't so entangled in that that they couldn't at a moment's notice drop everything and follow their officer. They never had to say, no, just give me some time to finish up here. No matter what they were doing in their civilian life, they knew that at a moment's notice they could follow their their soldier. And uh, because of this, uh, this is what we're being called to. We're being called to follow Christ. In the same way. And the last part of that verse tells us that they, they were remaining faithful to the officer who enlisted them. And it was often the, um, the, the commanding officer who enlisted his own soldiers. Unlike how we think of military today, often it was the commanding officer who would go and he would speak to somebody and he would enlist them under himself as a soldier. And because of that, there was this almost like a brother bond between them. And they would do anything. They would lay down their life in a moment for the commanding officer. One commentator, MacDonald, writes, The believer, of course, has been enlisted by the Lord. And our love for him should cause us to maintain light hold on the things of this world. It's not saying we shouldn't be involved in the world. In fact, we see many scriptures that say we should. 
but we should hold lightly to the things of this world in order that we can serve Christ on a moment's notice to do whatever he asks us to do. That is what this word picture means to us. In verse 5, we see the next word picture, and he says, And athletes cannot win the prize unless they follow the rules. So if the soldier is a picture of dedication, the athlete is a picture of discipline. Top of the line, Roman running shoes. Awesome. Again, in other places, Paul uses this metaphor of an athlete. And in most of those other places, he uses it as an idea of training. It's the training that goes in to prepare for the competition. But in this case, he, he switches the metaphor a bit, and now it becomes during the competition, we need to follow the rules. And again, this is, would have been an image that would have been popular to Timothy, to the people that would be reading this. Uh, the big games were very... Uh, uh, a very important part of the entertainment in their society. And we know that every game has rules that we're supposed to follow. And if you follow any form of athletics today, you also real that it, or find that for many athletes, part of the game is to try to find ways around the rules. To try to win at all costs, to take the easy way out, to do whatever they can to give them the advantage. And yet Paul is telling us here that we need to run the the race. We need to enter the competition in a way that we will not risk being disqualified. Because we can't win if we don't follow the rules. And as we read through uh, the remainder of 2 Timothy, as we read through other of Paul's writings, he starts laying out what the rules for us as Christ's followers are. He lays out the way we are supposed to be conducting ourselves. And now he's simply reminding us, don't look for an easy way out. Don't look for the easy win. Follow the rules. Running without being disqualified requires the Christian to have strong qualities of discipline, self-control, and endurance. And we need to maintain an unquestioning obedience to the rules that have been laid out for us. In in chapter 4, a little later in the letter, Paul comes back to this analogy and says, uh, again, he's just said, the time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. So he encourages Timothy in this, and then he reflects on his own life and said, this is what I have tried to do with my own life. Yes, I may have made mistakes, but this was the goal. This is how I tried to compete. And so in verse 6, he moves on to his third word picture and says, And hardworking farmers should be the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. And so the farmer is this picture of diligence, this picture of hard work. So again, for me who likes word pictures, when I think of a farmer, I just, I think of the harvest. And that's what this part of the word picture is talking about. It's talking about preparing for and working towards the harvest. And many of you either are farmers or no farmers have been involved in farming and know that there's a lot of hard work 
that goes into that process. But it's important for us to realize that in this culture, most of the people doing the hard work weren't the people who owned the land. Most land was owned by the wealthy, and they had hard-working tenants. They were called worker tenants. And they would live on the land, and they would work on the land, and they would put all of the hard work and sweat into the crop. But they only got a very small portion of the harvest. The owner of the property would have received most of the the profits from that. And so Paul is speaking, what he would have said would have, would have made people really kind of think, yeah, that is how it should be. He says that the hardworking farmer should be the first to enjoy the fruits of the labor. The people putting in the work should be the first at the rewards. There are some scholars who they've looked at the way this is phrased, and actually some scholars think the word first may be misplaced. I read some scholars who, who feel that it would actually be a more accurate reading to say farmers should first do the hard work before receiving the fruit of their labor. And so it's hard to know for sure if we're talking about that the people who do the hard work should get the first reward or first do the hard work and then get your reward. But either way, the thought behind it is fairly clear. And that is this idea that there are no benefits without hard work. And when we think of this, remember, we're talking about all of these illustrations in the light of discipleship, in the light of entrusting others with the gospel. That's what this passage is about. So the hard work we're speaking about is the idea of making disciples. And so we've been told that we can't take the easy way out. We need to do the hard work if we want to receive the rewards. And again, in 4.8, Uh, Paul mentions again this idea that there are rewards. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. But in order to be eligible for the prize, we need to be willing to do the hard work. It requires endurance and the strength that we find in Christ. And so Paul goes on to give us the ultimate example of what endurance looked like. And that's in verse 8 where he says, Always remember that Jesus Christ, a descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. This is the good news I preach. That's the example of endurance. He was willing to go to the grave for us. Paul goes so far as to summarizing the gospel and what the gospel means as being the gospel is the risen Lord. That's the gospel message. And Paul expounds on that throughout various parts of his writings, but he says in a concise point, this is the gospel I preach. The gospel I preach is the risen Lord. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, he goes so far as to say, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If it wasn't for a risen Christ, everything we're teaching is useless. Your faith is useless if there's not a risen Christ. This is the center of the gospel that he speaks on. Not only the center of the gospel that he preaches, but as we continue to read, he says, and because I preach this good news, I am suffering. 
and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. He said, it's because I preach this that I'm chained up right now. And you can imagine him hearing the shackles on his arms clinking together as he writes every word of this or as he dictates this text, this letter. He's saying, it's because I believe this, because I'm willing to preach this, that I am chained up right now. But continues on and says, but the word of God cannot be chained. You have to realize this is happening in a context where Christians are persecuted. That Christians are dying and being martyred for their faith. They're trying to stifle out the word of God. They're trying to get rid of this whole movement that is in its formation stages. And Paul declares, but the word of God cannot be chained. They can chain me up, but the word of God will never be chained. The word of God is alive and active. And in verse 10, he comes back to this idea of endurance. So I am willing to endure anything if it will bring salvation and eternal glory in Christ Jesus to those that he has chosen. And we've already talked about some of the things that Paul has already endured. Some of the things that he's already gone through because of his dedication to make sure that people hear the gospel. He says that he will endure anything if it will bring salvation to others. And as I read that, I have to ask myself, so why am I so afraid to boldly declare the gospel where I am today? Why are you so afraid to dare to boldly declare the gospel at work, at school, in the community? Paul is willing to endure every sort of atrocity for this. And yet, I find often today, it seems like an undaunting task. And I think for Christians in Canada today, our faith is often more affected by political correctness and apathy than it does fear of persecution. What's the worst persecution that we experience today in Canada? Someone might not accept your invitation to come to church. Someone might laugh at you. Someone might not respect you. And yet in most cases that I've heard of, these are actually the rare responses. And yet this is what we face. And yet I think that, that when we look at this idea of discipleship that, that we're being, that's being spoken of in chapter 1 and chapter 2, We're commanded to do this and to go out and to entrust others. I believe that this call to stand strong and endure that we read in in 2 Timothy that we've been going through is for us today is a call to shed off our busy schedules, to shed off our worldly pursuits that are distracting us from a life centralized on the gospel. A life centralized on Jesus Christ. Serving Christ is hard work. We're never told anywhere that it will be easy. And it requires total commitment. It requires us to have the dedication of a soldier. A soldier who is willing to drop everything on a moment's notice and follow what his commander asks him to do. It requires us to have the discipline of an athlete 
who's not willing to compromise on the rules in order to give himself an advantage, but is willing to follow the rules so that he's eligible for a prize. He requires the diligence of a farmer who's willing to put the hard work in in order to get the reward. It's not something that we can add into our lives. It has to become our lives. Paul continues on with a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying. And for those of you who've been with us on this series through First and Second Timothy, will realize that this phrase comes up quite a bit. This is actually the fourth time that Paul gives us a trustworthy saying. And even though it comes up again and again, we're really not 100% sure what that is. Somehow this is a saying that the, the readers of the letter would have identified with. It might have been an early creed from the early church, something that they repeated and memorized in order to keep them strong through the persecution, something that continually focused them on why they existed. Some feel that maybe it's part of a worship song, the words to a worship song that they would have sung in their early gatherings. But although we don't know exactly what these trustworthy sayings were or where they came from, we realize that the readers would have identified with them. They would have known them. They would have rang true with them. And he, Paul is just explaining, these are trustworthy sayings. This is something to hold on to. And he begins with this idea of, if we die with him, we will also live with him. And in some cases, with everything we've read through about the persecution of Paul, and the fact that he's, he's waiting his execution, my first thought went to this as being a call for martyrdom. A call to be willing to die for him. And yet, when we look at it in context, it rings truer to be the idea of dying to our old self, dying to our sinful nature, and living a new life in Christ. And it's spoken of in Romans 6, verse 4, when it says, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. And so he's saying, if we are willing to die to our old self, to die to our sinful nature, we will live with him. And a beautiful picture of this is baptism. That's what baptism symbolizes. When the person goes down into the water, it's a symbol. A symbol of them saying, I am giving up my old life. I'm giving up my selfishness. I'm giving up the old sinful nature. And when we raise them up, it's this idea that I am being raised up to a new life in Christ. Christ is the Lord and Savior of my life. He is what I live for. And we're going to have an opportunity in just a couple of weeks to celebrate this with a number of people from our congregation here at Attridge. The congregation at Broadway will also be celebrating baptisms in just a couple of weeks. And what a wonderful time that we have to be able to celebrate people as they make this public declaration of their faith. So if we die with him, we'll live with him. It also tells us that if we endure with him, that that we will reign with him. And again, it's talking about these rewards that Paul has been speaking of. This idea that if we are willing to endure, if we are willing to be strong, if we are willing to live this life for Christ, there is a reward that's waiting for us. We will reign with Christ one day. But there's another side to that. And that is that if we deny him, 
he will deny us. And to start with, I think it's important to realize that this idea of denying him, if we deny him, isn't talking about those temporary moments of weakness in our life. It's not those times that we make a mistake, that we, that we mess up, because we all have that in our Christian walk. Peter denied Christ three times the night before Jesus was crucified. And yet that is not what is being talked about here in this idea of denying him. In this case, we're talking about a true denial of who Christ is with our life. It's speaking of someone who has never embraced the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. It's speaking of an unbeliever, someone who has refused to commit to Christ. And it says, if you deny him, or if we deny him, he will deny us. As we read through the scriptures, it's clear that there are consequences to that decision. That there are consequences to not following Christ with our life. And in this case, if we deny him, we deny him if we do not choose to follow him. So sometimes we deny him simply by not making a choice. Not making a choice is making a choice. It's making a choice to deny him. So there may be people in this room today who've never decided, who've never made that commitment to follow Christ with their life, who've never uh, signed on and said, yes, I will die to who I am so I can follow Christ. And if you do, I encourage you, if that's who you are, today is the day to make that decision. Today is the day to make that decision to follow Christ with your life because it's clearly that there are penalties, there are consequences to not making that decision. And if that's who you are uh, today, and you'd like to make that decision, I encourage you to come and talk to one of our staff. Uh, Talk to the person you came to church with today. You know, we would love to talk through what that means for you. Because it's very clear in this passage that there are penalties, there are consequences to not making that choice. But the trustworthy saying finishes up with, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. And suddenly it gets a little bit perplexing. Up until now, these statements were pretty clear and articulate. Up until now, we had, if we die with him, we'll live with him. That made sense. If we deny him, he denies us. If we endure with him, it made sense. And and now I get to this one. I'm like, but if we're, he just said, if we deny him, he'll deny us. But now it says, if we're unfaithful, he's faithful. And so here's my take on, on what this part of the trustworthy saying means. This unfaithfulness is those times when we mess up. This unfaithfulness is those times of weakness in our life, those times of doubt in our life, those times of questioning in our life. We've committed our lives to following Christ, but in a given situation or a given chapter of our life, we have doubts, we make mistakes. Again, I come back to Peter. This is Peter on the night where three times he said, I don't know who Christ is. True children of God will not be denied even during times of weaknesses. They won't be denied even in those times of temporary doubt. And as I thought through this, I was reminded of a story about Emmy. Emmy is our three-year-old. And one night I was trying to put her down for sleep, and she had been going through a few days of very much questioning who was in charge of the situation. 
And this night was particularly uh, trying. And so over a period of about an hour and a half, I tried everything I could, and she tried everything she could to say that she was in control and she was not going to sleep that night. And there were many tears, and it was just a frustrating time. And eventually she fell asleep. And I went up feeling bad, and I went to sleep. It was the evening. It didn't end how I had hoped it would. But when she woke up in the morning, I heard her wake up, woke up, and I went down to her room. And I picked her up, and she looked me in the eye, and her very first words to me that morning were, Daddy, do you still love me? Her very first words to me in the morning, Daddy, do you still love me? And I have to admit, my heart broke a little bit right then. Because you see, when she finally decided that, yes, she was going to go to sleep, and those moments from when she started being quiet to when she fell asleep, that's what was going through her mind. I've been disobedient. I haven't done what I'm supposed to do. I haven't been listening. Does Daddy still love me? In fact, when she woke up, that was still the first thought in her mind. Daddy, do you still love me? And so, of course, I looked her right in the eye, and I said to her, of course I still love you. I will always love you. You will always be my child. And that, to me, is what this last statement is. It says, when we mess up, when we, when we come back to God and say, God, do you still love me? It says, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Paul began this passage that we looked at by encouraging Timothy to mentor up new leaders by teaching them what he's learned from Paul. Timothy is supposed to be a discipler, a teacher, someone to entrust others. So I encourage you to spend some time this week praying that God would help you find that person or that group of people who he's calling you to disciple that he's calling you to build up and encourage, that he's calling you to entrust with the gospel. Someone you could spend time encouraging and building up for the sake of the gospel. We are called to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And through this strength, we can overcome whatever's placed in our path, just like we sang about earlier. And for many of us, part of this idea of overcoming will involve stripping off the distractions of this life, and putting Christ first, replacing him in that priority position in our life. I am naturally a selfish person. I am naturally someone who puts myself first. I think we all are. So for me to put Christ first will require the kind of dedication and discipline and diligence that Paul has spoken of in this chapter. And these practices will give me the strength and endurance to finish strong.